welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today, we're going to be talking about parenting a child who has experienced trauma with Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Karen is a clinical social worker at Chaddock and has worked with children and families for over 30 years with specializations in attachment and trauma issues. Her work has been published in peer-reviewed journals, as well as books and magazines, and she hosts the popular Attachment Theory and Action podcast. Her book, Raising the Challenging Child, How to Minimize Meltdowns, Reduce Conflict, and Increase Cooperation, will be published in 2020. Welcome, Karen, to Creating a Family. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I admire your work and all you do in this arena. And I'm often on your Facebook group checking out what the (laughs) session is. And so I'm really happy to be here with you, Dawn. Well, wonderful. Let's start. We're talking about trauma. And uh, let's start by talking what is trauma? And you know, and it's an, it's an interesting question because I hear kind of in the zeitgeist now people talking about trauma and it's like, oh yeah, I've had such trauma. And, and, and it seems like, you know, trauma can be traffic on the way to work or trauma can be uh, having an overbearing mother or trauma can be anything. It feels like when people are talking about it, it's used very loosely now. And perhaps that's accurate. Perhaps trauma really is meant to be used loosely. So what, how do you define trauma? Well, you know, whenever it comes to like, let's have an official definition, I always go to the National Child Traumatic Stress Network and kind of see what they have. And that's actually a great resource for your listeners to even be aware of as we're talking about this. But it's meant to be an overwhelmingly terrifying experience. Usually you feel that your life is at risk, you're afraid of harm, or somebody around you. So you can experience trauma. Uh, A child can experience trauma by seeing a parent beaten. I think that sometimes people don't realize that in terms of when we think about domestic Mm -hmm. violence. Well, as long as the child wasn't getting hit, but if there's an overwhelming fear that you are at risk for bodily injury or witnessing something that dangerous, that is trauma. Um, And I think a a thing that people also forget to separate that we can probably talk about is there's trauma and there's PTSD. Everybody that experiences a traumatic event does not develop PTSD. So, so but, that, that's a very interesting point. So what is the distinction between trauma and PTSD? So you could experience a traumatic event. You could have, let's put this in the frame of children, since that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. You could have caregivers around you that are very supportive. You could, you know, go back to a situation where you got a lot of attention and uh, support and if you need counseling or whatever, and you could not develop PTSD, which would mean you don't start having nightmares. You're not constantly thinking about this. You're not having symptoms of depression. You're not afraid to go to the area, maybe where the trauma happened or something like that. So we do know secure attachment is a big resiliency factor for trauma. And that's one of the ways that attachment and trauma both go together. I heard a quote once that I loved that trauma is not about what happens to you, but whether or not you have someone's arms to run into after the trauma. So, and we even saw this done just a little 
tangential issue. In 9-11, they did some work looking at people who were uh, exhibiting post-traumatic stress disorder after the 9-11 event. And the lower the level of stress in a person's life and home, the less likely they were to develop PTSD symptomology. So if you went home to a warm, loving environment, a low stress environment, a place where you felt safe, you were less likely to develop PTSD than somebody that went into a chaotic situation or you know, maybe you're on the verge of divorce or you've got all kinds of things going on with your kids and you just don't even have a safe place to run mm-hmm. to. Yeah, that that safe place to cocoon and nurture and be nurtured and and healed. I mean, that's in essence running into someone's arms is a way of of licking your wounds, so to speak, or of being uh, of regenerating. And what we'll come back to that uh, because I think that's really important for parents who are fostering and adopting kids who've experienced uh, trauma. One more quick piece that's worth mentioning is also a lot is. Uh, look related to physiology. So we also know, you know, what your physiology elevates, you know, we said you're frightened, you're terrified, so your heart rate's going up, your cortisol, all of that is happening in your body. And we've seen work where if uh, there was a study done with people exposed to um, bombing, suicide bombing, but they didn't die, but they went to the, the emergency room and got treatment for something. And if they left the emergency room with their heart rate low and everything back to baseline in terms of physiology, they were much less likely to develop, to develop PTSD. Huh. So it's that elevated physiology. That's why things like yoga and Tai Chi and meditation and mindfulness and all of this are becoming so popular in the trauma literature is that lowering that physiology and being able to do that as quickly as possible will greatly reduce the incident of PTSD. Well, and so often for us from a parenting standpoint, we're not in the position to do that at the time. Our children have often been exposed to more than one traumatic event. And, and quite often it's a series or, or a lifestyle of, of trauma um, yes. before they come to us. So let's talk about how children are particularly vulnerable because they are in a situation where they are either continually experiencing trauma or there's always the possibility that trauma or something traumatic will happen. So how does that impact our kids before they come to us? Yes. And so there we want to draw the distinction, too, between complex trauma and a single episode trauma. So now what you're just so so somebody going out into a car accident and then being traumatized by that and developing PTSD, but they get treatment, they're going to get better a lot more quickly than what you're describing complex trauma, which is multiple different traumatic events and often involving caregivers. So that, again, brings a whole other level of concern to the table because we know that, what were we saying? You seek protection from an attachment figure. So if the attachment figure or the person you seek protection from is the person who also harms you, mm-hmm. we have a real major problem there. So mm-hmm. complex trauma then now we're getting to talk about something much bigger, multiple events and often involving caregivers. And like you said, ongoing. And so that's why the statement that you said earlier about 
you know, it's not just I'm having a bared hair day and I feel traumatized <laughs> by that. That's why we have to really understand, like there's different levels yeah. here. And we have to have great respect in terms of understanding that the way we're using it in the common vernacular, that is like a totally, like I said, with the hair, that's like a totally different thing. And we have to understand single episode trauma is also different than complex trauma and complex trauma is harder to treat. And children are much more likely to feel helpless because they are. Yeah, (laughs) because they are helpless. Yes. Yeah. And I think that is important. And, And the reality is very often adoptive and foster parents don't know the degree of trauma uh, that their children have experienced. And even if their their agencies are trying to tell them everything they know, the agencies don't know. And if they're adopting internationally, the orphanage may not know even what's happening within, within inside the orphanage. So we're working in a vacuum. And it, I think a lot of times we want to believe that our children may have experienced a one-time event, but it feels like in my experience, that it is more likely for children who have been removed from care, uh, from their parents' care, or in, they are ending up in state care, that it's more likely to be ongoing and continual, i.e. complex. Has that been your experience as well? Yes, I would agree with that. And I think we have to also understand the idea of the trauma of neglect, because most children yes. who come into care it is for neglect. By and large, way higher percentages of children are coming into foster care for neglect than a specific incident, like the parent beat them or something. So, you know, what that means, that ongoing feeling of you're alone, you're afraid, no one is available, no one is there to soothe you, no one's there to help you with what I call your big feelings. And for children who are completely dependent on their caregivers for their survival, that we, we think of that as the trauma of neglect. Because some people think, oh, well, if they weren't beaten, you know, they're, you know, it, yes. it, it's not as serious. And I think that's another way foster parents get tripped up is not understanding the absence of a consistent caregiver is lonely and often terrifying for young children. It, we hear very often parents will say she was just neglected. So I think you are, you are so spot on that we, we underplay the impact of neglect. And in fact, it can be more pervasive. You know, by now, many people have seen these slides of the neglected brain versus the brain that had stimulation. And what we know is chronic neglect, like no one talking to you, no one holding you, no one regulating, helping regulate your emotional states can be more harmful to the brain than intermittent, because sometimes when there's these intermittent episodes of violence or things like this, hitting the child, even sexual abuse, sometimes in between, there's good positive interaction. Mm -hmm where if you have this ongoing chronic neglect, there's just like nothingness a lot of the time. So it can even, in terms of brain development, be more damaging than incidents of abuse. Does the age of the child when they experience the trauma, physical trauma or neglect, does the age matter as far as how, how it generally impacts a child and how severe the child will be impacted? You know, that is a complicated question. The first thing I would say is, you know, the smaller children are more vulnerable in a way, like 
The other thing that we know that reduces uh, PTSD is if you can flee, if you can run, if you can flee from the situation and get out of it. You know, we talk about that back brain, that fight, flight, freeze mm -hmm. part of the brain. And, but often children can't flee. So, and they often can't fight because they're smaller. So freezing and dissociative states are often their, their only option, which is not the best because again, that produces more PTSD symptomology. So I want to say, I mean, I think being young and vulnerable it's just like we said, it's an overwhelming, terrifying, and fearful thing. Well, you're going to be overwhelmed and terrified more easily when you're young. Mm -hmm. I think the other one thing that I used to teach is that preverbal trauma. So trauma that children can't tell you happened, but they know in their bodies, our children hold in their bodies traumatic experiences, even before they have language. But you know, if you're a therapist or a professional wanting to work with that, and the child has no memory of it. They just have feelings of anxiety and fear. And when I go to a certain place or smell a certain smell. However, I later changed that because what I learned later about the brain is even as an adult, the language part of your brain goes offline when you're terrified. So really, mm. all trauma is like preverbal trauma. You know, hence, hence the phrase, too scared to scream. Yeah. That, that terror. So now, so now I'm like, okay, but I used to think, well, if it was before language, it's harder to treat because they, they can't even tell you what happened. They can't talk about it and, and all of that. But now I know, you know, that can happen with adults too. So I think, I do think age is a factor, but I do think these other things that we've been talking about earlier too, like if you secure attachment or a trusted caregiver that you can go to, the amount of support that you have, that can also, you know, how frequent was this a one or two time thing or once or twice, not to minimize it at all? Or was it like you said, ongoing? Was it a caregiver? It's going to be a lot more traumatic for a child to be traumatized by a caregiver than the man down the street or the, the uncle that, that people didn't know was doing this because that's not the primary person mm -hmm. that they expect to protect them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, so I think, yeah. I think age is one factor, but I think there's like all of these other ones. That's why I said it was kind of a hard question. Yeah. And I, I, I definitely hear your point. And I think it also matters, as you point out, was there a person in that child's life who was able to provide nurturance and care and, and the child yes. was able to bond? Even though bad things were happening, was there still you know, we talk about the power of one. Was there was there one person in that child's life because that can act as a protective factor for yes, yeah, for that yes. child. One hundred percent, yes. Let me remind everybody that this show is underwritten by the Jockey Being Family Foundation. The Jockey Being Family Foundation has a national backpack program that provides newly adopted children with a backpack personalized with their initials. And each backpack includes a bear and a blanket and a parent tote. And from my perspective, that's the parent tote I get most excited about because inside that tote, there are lots of resources available for parents to help them along this uh, post-adoption journey that they are on with their child, including resources that would help them with parenting a child who has been exposed to trauma. Your agency or your attorney is the one who needs to sign up for the backpack program. It is free for the agency 
or attorney, and it's free for the parents. But it does, you do need to let your agency know if you're interested, let your agency know to go to the jockeybeanfamily.com website and just click on the backpack program. It is super easy to sign up. They do it that way on purpose. So get your agency to sign up because it is a great resource. All right, let's talk about how to best parent a child who has experienced trauma. And I'd like to start with talking about some of the typical behaviors we might see in children who've experienced trauma. And then we're going to talk about how how best to, to parent these kids. Yes, yes. Well, I think we've already taken step one of that idea of how to parent these kids in our emphasis on the complexity of this and the severity of this and that it's there and that it doesn't go away because you're in a safe place suddenly, which I know we'll, we'll probably talk to that li- about that later. But I think intense emotional upset, I think a lot of times these children sort of blow their top or blow a fuse or, or something like that very quickly. I think they often have nightmares. As we mentioned earlier, they have depressive symptoms and symptoms of anxiety, poor emotional regulation. And so the way we learn to regulate our emotions early on is when we have a caregiver that helps us regulate our emotions and is there for us. If you have a caregiver that gets more upset as you're getting upset, or if you have a caregiver that just is not around, you're not learning to regulate your internal states. And and this is a really big thing because there's often a misunderstanding that that parents think, you know, they just lose it, you know, when it's really like they they have not had a person to co-regulate them, help them with big emotions. We know that when you hold a baby, rock a baby, calm them down, shush them, all those things, we call that a conversation of limbic systems with the, the caregiver's right brain downloading to the baby's right brain. So they're learning, oh, I'm upset okay, this is how it feels to calm down. This is what my little brain has to do. But they couldn't do that without without you. I think they have problems forming attachments, obviously trust issues. And when we're talking about complex trauma that involves caregivers, you're now a new caregiver. Um, and And a child has perhaps learned not to trust you. Attention problems. When you're in the the back part of your brain, which maybe we could quickly talk about that. We have our cortex, the upper part of our brain, and we have our midbrain where emotional regulation, and then our back brain, sometimes called the reptilian brain (laughs) or the fight, flight, freeze part of our brain. If you're uh, from a situation where there was abuse and neglect and you are fearful a lot, you live kind of in that back part of your brain Mm -hmm. and you scan the environment. You know, parents will say, oh, they notice everything. Well, it's not necessarily a good thing. They notice everything because they're constantly scanning the environment for safety. Mm -hmm. But what I want to say related to academic difficulties is if you're constantly having to scan the environment and think about safety, you can't be in your cortex. You know, they used to say, put on your thinking cap. Well, that's like (laughs) put on your your cortex and the A child who has this kind of history, their cortex and even their midbrain, their emotional regulatory part of the brain is being hijacked all the time by this back brain. Is it safe? Am I safe? Is someone going to hit me? Is somebody going to be there for me? You know, what is that laughter? You know, anything in the environment is hijacking that part of their brain. So that's why you see the academic difficulties. And, you know, sometimes we see issues with food. Sometimes we see issues with toileting. 
uh, those kinds of issues are all can all be symptoms of a child that has had trauma in their history. And, and we often will hear foster parents and adoptive parents both say they need so much attention. They need constant attention. They need me to be doing something with them, interacting with them nonstop. And that also can be a result of a past trauma. You know, the way I think of that, Dawn, is they're terrified of being forgotten. Mm -hmm. They have been forgotten so many times in so many ways that it's almost like, I have to know you're here. 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 I have to know I'm safe. It's not a child that doesn't have trauma in their background. It, it's it's a less compulsive, like I want your attention and I want to play and I like attention. Okay, that's a typically developing kid. But when there's almost a compulsion behind it, like yeah. you're describing, yes. that's the difference. Yeah. And that's also what's very exhausting and tiring for parents. Yes, um, it is. I mean, that's, yeah. But compulsion is actually a good way to describe it because that's often how people, parents will describe it to us. They will say, it's it's not like a normal kid just needing attention. This is a kid who overwhelmingly is needing every second of my attention. And you know, another thing that we will sometimes see with children is that they will be the first to reject. That goes back to what you were saying about attachment issues. But a child who may even be starting to attach and then stop and and feeling as if they're the parents will describe as they're feeling it, that they are being rejected. How is that tied into trauma? Yeah, well, I think that when when you've lost your first caregivers, which if that's the situation we're talking about, and children also are going to blame themselves. They'll often idealize the caregivers and, and internalize there was something wrong with me. I wasn't lovable. I'm not wanted, etc. And so when you get to another caregiver, you're going to be on guard. You're going to think they may not like me. They might get rid of me. That is a terrifying feeling, especially for a little person who can't take care of themselves. So sometimes a way to sort of take charge of that and take control because that feels very out of control. When might these people get rid of me? You know, these other people got rid of me. And if you've had multiple placements before it, you've had other people get rid of you. So I would rather reject you or I would rather behave in a way that you don't like me. That feels like I'm at least in control. That way I'm not, at, I, that's where they reject you before you reject me. I don't want to be at your mercy. I'd rather like you just, I just create this circumstance to feel some mm -hmm. level of control in my very out of control life is where that can come in. It can also come in in that we kind of, um, this is goes for adult partnerships too. We recreate what's familiar to us. So, you know, we'll act in a certain way to get you to, so if I had a caregiver that was really angry and abusive and called me names, I will have this tendency to act in a way that makes you do that too. Yeah. Because that's what's familiar. And that's where you get this situation, which is really can be, and I want to say it out loud here because I think parents are, don't feel like they can say it, that terrifying situation where foster and adoptive parents will say, I never felt like harming a child until yep. I had this child. Mm -hmm. And that's, this isn't all that's going on, but this is a part of what's going on in, in the child will recreate what they had with you mm -hmm. and sort of like you're becoming the parent. 
the abuse their, their abusive parent. parent, right, right, right. Yeah, because you know, we, we, how many how many times do we hear adult? Oh, I keep getting involved with the same kind of relationship. That's not good for me, right? So it's that kind of thing. And I think another thing that I just kind of want to interject here in terms of like this behavior and and how hard it is to deal with is that a lot of times parents too they'll say it comes out of nowhere. It just absolutely comes out of nowhere. And my message on that is no. Nothing comes out of nowhere. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's one of two things going on. You know, one thing I would tell parents is the reason it feels like it comes out of nowhere is because this kid, because of their history and their fears and their core sense of not being safe, not being wanted on a scale of, you know, one, I'm totally relaxed and 10, I am like so anxious. I'm jumping out of my skin and ready to lose it. Mm -hmm. These kids are hovering around seven, eight, nine. And every, for everything. So it takes for very everything. little. Yeah. So it takes very little. Um, and the other thing that I would say in terms of working with parents who say it comes out of nowhere and everybody says it, and I've even said it too about my own kids, but <laughs> really it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's just that the cues are very subtle. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's usually, you know, a tapping and the leg is starting or there's a certain look kids get in their eye. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the work I do with parents is teaching them to recognize those really subtle cues mm -hmm. because it's building, it's building. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these kids, their ability to regulate their own emotions is so poor that once you get to a certain threshold, when you missed all those little cues, which is easy to do in the busyness of life, but once mm -hmm. you get to that threshold, it's kind of the point of no return and you kind of got to wait it out. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to be a bad scene for mm -hmm. maybe hours. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, or even longer in, in, in the sense of the child then beating themselves up because oftentimes, even if they're not telling you, they're disappointed in themselves too. Yeah, um, and they didn't course. want this to happen the way it no. did, even if they're not going to acknowledge it. Okay, thank you. That was that was helpful. Yeah, because when you think about, okay, how do you parent these kids? The one thing I think about a lot is proactive and prevention, proactive and prevention. Because most parents I work with, it's too late in the game. You know, the kid's already out of control, losing it, kicking, spitting, biting, and they are not at a point where you can use some of the strategies that we teach you. Mm -hmm. They're just, like I said, like once they get at a certain level, it's really hard to get them calmed down. And that's going to happen sometimes. Sure. And, you know, the parent just needs to stay calm and let the, the child know I'm, I'm here for you. It's going to be okay. But what I often have parents start doing is, you know, don't talk to me like that. Don't say that. Don't do that. That is useless. Yeah. At that point, it's useless. But learning to notice like really, really subtle cues, that's like the prevention. And the proactive is giving attention as much. Now, I know we talked about earlier that the kids can be wanting attention all of the time, but there are times when you can give very focused attention. And even if it's 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes after school, 10 minutes at night, that very focused one-on-one -on -one attention when nothing else is distracting you can really almost, I say, inoculate the kid so that 
they don't do this like calling you and constant and all the time. I think some parents, they get into a mode where they almost, when the children act like that super strong attention seeking, they almost get in a mode where they don't even want to interact with them at all. Yeah. Yeah, because what you're really wanting to do is get some space. Um, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And so then it, do you see then how it becomes a vicious cycle? Yeah. Like I need more attention than the average child and I get less attention than the average child. So a lot of times it's working with parents like, what can you do? Like I said, maybe we start out with 10, 10. You would be surprised or maybe not, Dawn. You, you talk to lots of people and you have kids yourself. You know, sometimes I'll make a list throughout the day. Let's talk about how much like quality time, like really, if they're young children playing with them, you know, if they're older teens, just chatting about whatever or getting them their favorite snack. Let's talk about, let's go through your whole day and see where that happens. And it will be like, or how many minutes that happens and it'll be zero. It'll be, you know, we get up in the morning and then we have to do this and then we have this and then we have to get off to school and then we have this and then after school we have this mm-hmm. and then we have to fight about homework. And then we- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so like I'll show that to parents to say, you know, if we're trying to develop a close relation, you know, if we're, we're trying to develop a relationship with a child and if we're trying, Bruce Perry talks about, if you don't know his work, anyone listening, you need to look it up. He's wonderful in terms of trauma. Positive relational experiences are what heal trauma. So if we're just having like negative experiences or even neutral ones, like eat your breakfast, okay, that's okay. But that's not this like really focused attention that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So parents will be surprised. I'll say, how are you going to heal trauma and develop a an attachment when there's like like no time together. And saying this in a gentle way, I know it's hard. I mean, life is busy and I don't mean to say this in a blaming way, but just logically, if there's no time that we spend in positive relational interaction, how could we be doing this? And in the busyness of life and in particularly, you know, in the busyness of what we're almost programmed to think is good parenting now, on Monday, there's dance. On Tuesday, there's soccer. Oh, yeah. On Wednesday, there's taekwondo. On Thursday, there is two. And then we throw in, there's uh, occupational therapy. There's uh, there's emotional therapy. There's appointments here, appointments there. One of the things we hear all the time is that parents are just, they're run ragged, going from here to there and doing the things that they think they're supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. you know, to, to provide for these children. But the positive relational experiences require us to kind of slow down. They do. And, and that's hard to do. Exactly yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly right. It is. And it, it has to be intentional. That's why I talk about the 10, 10, 10, or, you know, um, tell me, the, what did you mean by the 10, 10, 10? So 10 minutes in the morning before school, whether gotcha. it's you sit with your child while they're waking up and rub their back and welcome them to the day, tell you, tell them that you love them something 10 minutes after school, 10 minutes, one-on-one before it's like, you know, hitting the homework or hitting the lessons or whatever, you know, we're going to sit, I'm going to get you a snack. I'm going to be here. We're going to talk. We're going to connect. You know, I'm going to rub your back. A lot of families I work with, there's a lack of physical affection. I will say that also, which is critical Mm -hmm. in terms of the body calming down. And then 10 minutes at night with a little special bed, you know, a lot of parents have the 
read the stories or, and talk and, you know, something like that. So Mm -hmm. something that there's these like touch points. And if if 30 minutes a day is too much, we'll start out with five. If there can just be five minutes of really focused attention. I do a lot of work using TheraPlay. So sometimes those are times when parents will do TheraPlay activities, which are really engaging, playful activities. Something like that is what I mean by that. Okay. That makes good sense. All right, I want to tell you about a couple of our partners. Our partners are those agencies who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, accurate information pre-adoption and post-adoption and pre-foster and post-foster. One of our wonderful partners is Children's Connection, Inc. They're an adoption agency providing services for domestic infant adoption and embryo adoption. And they also uh, can provide home studies and post-adoption support to families in Texas. And we have uh, Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited international adoption agency. This is my favorite part of their announcement. I love reading off all of their countries. It's 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 melodic to me. Uh, they are a Hague-accredited international adoption agency placing children in Armenia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine, and they do kinship adoptions from a whole host of other countries as well. And we thank them for their support. All right, now we're coming to the where the rubber meets the road for a lot of parents. We get so many questions. So we know our child has experienced trauma or we suspect that our child has experienced trauma. And yet we also need to discipline this child. At the heart of discipline is training and education. But oftentimes these kids are hard to parent and they are challenging, let us say. And so Parents are struggling because they need to to institute some forms of control. The the child is often behaving in out-of-control ways, and yet we're constantly telling them about, we want you to be intentional with your attention. You need to be focusing on attachment. You need to be creating positive experiences between you and the child. And all of that's true and all of that's good. But it's also hard because the child is tantruming or is is out of control or is doing antisocial things. So that's all by way of introduction of how do we discipline children who have experienced trauma in a way that will not cause them more trauma and that will impact their relationship with us in such a way that we can provide support and a place for them to come back to. Well, I think that, you know, we could sum up some of what we were talking about up until now is connection before correction. So what can happen is parents start, they are doing lots and lots of discipline, but they're not having positive experiences. And so let me give you some examples of what positive experiences would be, because the first thing for people to understand is this idea of a relationship account. And you have to be depositing positive so that when you make a withdrawal, so a withdrawal in an account is you have to go to bed now and that's the last TV show or a withdrawal is now it's time to get down to business and do your homework. Okay. Those are withdrawals. Those are things that the child doesn't like. If you don't have deposits of positive experiences in that account, it's going to be a lot less likely that the child is going to cooperate with that. So that's why like, I'm emphasizing all of this. And so positive is choices, lots of choices, but not choices. You know, this is where I see people going too extreme. They become too rigid or they become too unstructured and the home is chaos. A choice for a young child is, do you want a blue cup or a red cup? 
A choice for an older child is, do you want to start your chore before your homework or after your homework? You want to get it out of the way or do you want to? There are all kinds of choices, sharing power with kids that have been in a home situation where they had no power and were at the mercy of people and and being harmed. You have got to share power. So you cannot, there's got to be some room for compromise. There's got to be some way. It's not my way or the highway. And this is what I see, either going to overly rigid or too unstructured. So that's like the first thing, you know, in TheraPlay, we talk about a balance of structure and nurture. You can't have all nurture and just the whole laissez-faire style and things are just out of control, you know, or you can't be running a boot camp. And both of these are also related to the parent's own history often. And, you know, I don't know that that'll be something that we have time to talk about. But the main point is, you have to make deposits so that when you have to make it withdrawal, there's something to withdraw from. You have to have some kind of connect. If a child is not connected to you, they're not going to obey you. Mm-hmm. You know, people think that obedience, you know, they can be like this hard line and making the kid do something by being really strict and scary. That's fear. They're obeying out of fear, not because they're connected to you. And want, you know, you, mom wants this, so I want to do this because my relationship with mom matters. So, so there's those two things. What I see um, often too, when you're asking many, and that now you're going to think this is ridiculous, Dawn, but <laughs> I really want a lot of in-home work with families that I have a special program that we, we have to prevent residential treatment. So we, we're going in homes where things are really out of control and they're thinking of out-of-home placement. We will ask the kids, we always ask the kids, what are the rules here? Nine times out of 10, they'll say, we don't have any. So, you know, one of the first things that we have to talk with parents on, you know, what kind of language is allowed here? And, you know, what we have to say violence is off limits. Nobody can hit anybody. And we need to have a plan in place of what to do then. But we'll go into these homes and there, there won't be rules and we will help parents set some rules and not a lot of rules. I'm talking like no violence, speak to each other with respect, maybe don't take what's not yours. We usually have the kids join in on it. The kids will know what the rules should be. They'll just say there aren't rules. Yeah. And the parent and the parents will say, well, no, it's true. We don't really have rules. We've kind of just give it up. So the first thing is you have to establish some rules and then you have to be consistent and structured enforcing those rules. So, you know, one of your examples on here was a four-year-old grabbing toys away, hitting, tantruming. You've got to intervene and say, oh no, we're not allowing that. You're going to have a time in is what we often recommend as a first thing, time in, not time out. And you have to sit here with mommy or daddy for a certain number of minutes. So I would say, you know, we have to have some rules. <laughs> That's the first thing. So the first thing is rules. And then yes. for violations of the rules, it yes. would be time in. To, yeah, time in, you know, for an older kid, it might be like some kind of loss of privilege or something like that. You know, parents will say, well, we'll have parents say, um, well, they, they won't give us their phone. Unless we like wrestle it away from them and they're on their phone too much. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you tell the kid, give us the phone. You know, you're not going to give us the phone. Okay. We're cutting off phone service. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost like parents become like, 
I mean, that's a drastic thing to do, Dawn, but once you do it, you don't have to do it again. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when we're in situations where things are really out of control, we have to kind of do something drastic, like once or twice. And then a kid knows, okay, you know, phones are off at eight. And if I want to have phone service, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then I have to give it in at eight. So we work with parents on establishing their rules and what are consequences and being consistent. And I know that's like, oh, well, that sounds like just general parenting. And I guess in a way, some of it is, but in a way, it seems like a lot of this falls by the, what happens is parents start to feel like victims of these children. Yes. And they no longer like have any authority and structure and they're shrinking and they're shrinking and they're shrinking, which I understand. I mean, these kids can be, some of them aggressive and violent, but this then becomes like a vicious cycle. So we really have to help parents like get back in charge. Once you feel like you're a victim of your child, it's just going to get worse. Like you need to get outside support or outside help. And so people will say, well, they let, we'll come in and, and start doing some work and they'll say, why? They seem like they like you. And we'll say better than me or, you yeah. know, whatever. We'll say, no, they feel safe with us. Because we set structure and we mean what we say and we follow through with it. And so I think that balance structure provides safety. All right. Let's start with this. Let's go to the scenario of the four-year-old. Yes. All right. So the first thing is to build up your relationship bank. You're going to want to make certain that you've got- With a four-year-old, that is so easy. You can put out two acceptable outfits. Mm. They could, don't say, what do you want to wear to preschool? Because they'll pick a swimsuit. You don't do that, but you can pick two things, you know, acceptable. So there's so many simple things for a kid that age, just to interject that. Yeah. And bedtime routines are easier for that age and things like that, which are, okay. So then you set up some simple rules- Ask before you take a toy, um, no hitting, trying to think of some other simple rules that you would have for a, um, and no using bad language or whatever. And so the child is not used to these and then, and violates the rule, grabs a toy, says a curse word, hits a kid or hits you. Then you're suggesting time in. Describe what that time in would look like. So let me just say one more thing before time in. I first want to say, Another thing that we always talk about is feed in the water the children every two hours. So what I mean by that is they should have nutritious snacks. They should have hydration. If, say, a child has sensory issues and really likes to chew, I would be having a chewy necklace. So I am wanting this kid in general in life to be in a good space because that's also a thing that leads to behavior problems. So let's assume Mm -hmm. the child hasn't allowed this child to get thirsty or hungry. Mm -hmm. These things happen a lot with neglected kids because they're not in touch with thirst and appetite. So they have to be offered things and it has to be physically put in front of them. Because if you say, do you want this? They'll say no. So you want to like first know that before you would be thinking, are they hungry? Are they thirsty? Have they had enough movement? All of these other things you have to think of first. Okay. So say you're kind of working as a parent on being aware of all of that, but still because that's going to eliminate 50% of these problems, Yeah, at least. That, okay? that goes back to the idea of prevention, 
uh, being yes. proactive. So, yeah. so let's say, hey, you're doing all that or you kind of had a bad day and you couldn't remember all that or whatever. And so then I would say, okay, no hitting. You're going to have to sit with mama for a couple of minutes. And I would do a time in. During the time in, are you paying attention to the child or you're just sitting and you're doing, you're reading the paper or you're... You know. Yes, I, I would. So if it's a child that'll sit beside you without running away, you know, I would just be doing whatever. You have to sit here. A lot of the kids that we work with, you have to hold them in time. <laughs> um, and so, you know, then if it's that level, I would probably, um, if they're screaming and kicking and whatever, I'd say, I know it's hard. You don't like sitting here. This is frustrating you. You know, it won't be that much longer. And I would stay really calm. And here's what else you're doing there when you're saying that, Dawn. You're staying calm. You're saying those things. You're also working on this child learning to know their emotional states mm-hmm. and giving them words for it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, oh, okay. This is what upset is. Oh, okay. I am kicking my feet. And you're doing a narrative of that. That's what we do with babies when they're little. This running commentary. Oh, you like that. Oh, you didn't like that. Okay. So you do that that commentary as calm as you can, because now you're also working on helping a child regulate and recognize emotional states. And so then you let them go back and try again. And then, you know, if they, whatever, if they keep, you know, say it's a, it's a toy that they keep, you know, doing something wrong with, it's like, you know what? you know, we're not going to have this toy today. This toy is just not working for you today. Mm -hmm. And we're not like, you're so naughty, you can't have your toy. We're having the attitude, for whatever reason, this toy is, this is, you're not saying all this, but this, you're taking responsibility and giving them a toy that's not working for them today. It's Mm -hmm. overstimulating them. It's whatever. So I, as the parent, need to take responsibility and realize that was too much for them. And so, or we're not going to go to the children's museum today because I can tell that's just not going to be a good place for you today. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you're so bad. Now you don't get to go to the children's museum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It's parent coming in and recognizing because this is showing the child. My mom knows what I can handle. My mom knows what I need. My mom is there to take care of me. And the children's museum, that's too much for you today. We're not going to do that today. So that's the other thing I want to say, Dawn. The consequences are not done in a punitive way. Mm -hmm. We want the attitude, this is a little too much for you and your body. And it's my job as a grown-up to change the scenario around here a little bit. Mm -hmm. You see how that's really different? Yeah, I absolutely do. Because there's one that is making, we can imagine how the child is feeling. They still don't get to go to the children's museum either way. But one, it's like, ha ha, you don't get to go because you misbehaved. And the other one is, we'll try again some other time, but this is not happening today. It gets complicated and it takes some creativity for parents if they have other children. Because we will often hear that they say, yeah, but then nobody went to the children's museum and everybody else was behaving and really looking forward to it. And that does take some challenge from the parenting standpoint, because you know that this child is potentially going to not be able to go. So planning in advance so that you plan the children's museum if your partner your partner is uh, is, right, is home, right, gets to right. the child, or that you've got somebody lined up that you can call and stay, yes. stay so that you, it, it takes, um, that goes back to the being proactive. Because if you know a child is potentially going to struggle, 
set them up in advance so that, you know, that not everybody has to set them up for advance for, for success. All right, let me give you another example. Four-year-olds are in a way easy for us because we can physically cuddle, we can physically hold if a child is tantruming or won't sit next to us or whatever. But let's take an older child, let's say a, a 13-year-old. Uh, and let's take a 13-year-old boy and he's and he, he has trouble controlling his emotions. And when he gets mad, he hits out. And in this case, he, he you know, puts a hole in the wall, you know, kicks it or punches it with his hand and he, he puts a hole in the wall. Now, you would start by saying, have rules which say, we don't hit, we don't, we don't put holes in the wall, we don't hit people, we don't. Um, so that would be your rule to begin with. But when a child has, and, and the other thing that we would start with, I am sure, stealing your punchlines here, is to be proactive and, and try to prevent, try to acknowledge, okay, this kid, he's come home, he's, he is tense. He's had a bad day. He's giving all the signals of getting ready to blow. If you've got those, and, and usually they are there, and hopefully you've noticed them, but sometimes you don't. And we're going to make sure that this child has uh, has been uh, has his physical needs taken care of. He's he's not hungry and he's not thirsty, and he still blows for whatever reason. Maybe you missed some of the signals, or maybe you're just tired. You know, you're busy. You've got two other kids. And, you know, and you've also had a bad day. All right, so the kid explodes, he punches a hole in the wall. And you've got to do something at this point. There's a hole in the wall. The kid is out of control. So thoughts on Kay, uh, what would you do in that, that type of scenario? Walk us through. Yeah, so, I mean, I think in that moment, like the punching and the, the, the hole through the wall or whatever, I would, you know, if, if you're there, if you're present, first of all, the first thing I would say, it's a lot better than punching you. Yeah. I thought about that. You might say, well, I'm glad you aim for the wall. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not even saying they would necessarily say that to him. But I do want parents to know that's a level of control. Because sometimes I also have to talk about parents to parents about things like that. Like, it could have been you and it was a wall. So that's mm -hmm. progress from yeah. what we were dealing with before. And so I would probably say some things like, you know, right there, right then. I'm like, what if I'm there, you know, wow, you are upset. Like, I feel like you, I must have missed something, you know, that you are really struggling. You are having a hard time. What can we do for you right now? What do you need? Um, and, you know, a lot of times if a kid's that upset, they can't say. Um, so I'll say, you know, do you want me to sit here with you or should I leave you alone for a while? They can sometimes pick from that. You know, we've had kids at Chat App, they'll say, <laughs> we'll say, do you want us to go in the room and be with you or do you want us to not? Well, how about if you don't come in, but you talk to me through the door? <laughs> that would work. So a lot of times if you offer even choices then, rather than go to your room right now for doing that, you know, you're not supposed to do that. The first thing you got to think of, this kid needs help. Yeah. This kid needs help. He doesn't need like lecturing and he doesn't need you yelling because then the both of you are going to escalate. He might put his other hand through the wall in another hole. So think of it that he needs help. You could, you could even say, could I get you a glass of water? I'll tell you, a lot of kids when they do something like this and they get a loving response, they are so shocked that they immediately are, are just like, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they... Takes the wind really, out of your sails if nothing else when somebody doesn't respond. Yeah. yeah and, and if you're yeah. out of control and somebody is not coming back to you out of control, 
Yes. That's the self-regulation where you can. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because there's this thing called mirror neurons where our neurons are going back and forth for each other. So his mirror neurons of anger are coming off. It's going to be very easy for you to become angry, especially if you have something. Maybe you had a father that punched stuff. Okay. Something like this where you're going to just really get activated. So, you know, being calm like that, you know, later when things are more calm, not then. Don't use a lot of words then, offer support then. Later, we can go back and say, hey, buddy, we got to talk about this. You know, first, let's talk about what upset you so much and like, you know, how we could help you with that. And we also got to talk about the wall, like whether we're going to fix it or you're going to, we're going to find someone to fix it with some of your allowance or what's going to happen. So you want to do something about the wall. You want to talk about, you know, what led to that. The mistake most parents make is they try to do it in that moment and in an angry way. And so then that draws the whole thing out, like you said, even further. Now we're angry for the whole night. You know, now we're still angry in the morning. Whereas if you can respond with support, something like that, you know, do you need a glass of water? No, I don't need a glass of water. Just get away from me. Okay, let me know when you're ready to talk because I'm here and do get away. That's the other thing parents will like push before the child's ready and then they get hit or something. And I want to say, he said, get away. Yeah. Now with a little one, it's different. If, if you can safely contain a little one, then I do recommend that. But with big kids, they can, you know, kick your butt or something. <laughs> you you, you got to, when they say back off, you need to back off, yeah. you know. Because they're trying to give you at that point. The, yeah, that's, I'm yeah. out of control. Right. And that's, yeah. you know, what we want to say, what we often talk about is use your words. That is using your words, saying, get away. I'm ready mm-hmm. to blow. You need to honor that at that point. Yeah. And again, not only parents, often teachers don't honor that. Yeah. And then the kid gets kicked out of school for a violent incident. And I say, you know, what happened? And they say, he said, get away from me. So we all surrounded him. <laughs> yeah. And he completely blew. He's in fight, flight, freeze. He's going to fight. So what I'm saying there, you know, offering support, staying calm, looping back to to try to figure out what was going on. The rule was broken. We're going to have to do something about that. The consequence needs, here's what I'll, here's another thing. Consequence has to match. A hole in the wall, we got to figure out a way to repair the hole in the wall. Whether dad's a handyman and you help with it, whether you have to pay part of the cost to the guy coming and doing the drywall. People say there's a hole in the wall, so he can't go to the dance. I'm like, that doesn't connect. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's something to be said for natural and logical consequences. There's a hole in a wall, so I'm going to make him scrub the kitchen floor. Yeah, no, that doesn't connect. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another important thing in having... Well, it might connect only in the sense if, okay, I'm going to repair the hole in the wall because I want the wall to be repaired correctly, but I was going to clean the kitchen floor today. So... okay. I'm going to repair the wall and you're going to do my job. That could be, that could work. Mm -hmm. So that, that could work. It's just that I see a lot of parents like having like the kid did this. So I did that. And there's not anything about that consequence that's going to help with this situation. Mm -hmm. 
if nothing else, helping with the repair of the wall, maybe they can do it next time themselves. I mean, it's somehow connected. It happens again. <laughs> or they could get a summer job doing sheetrock. So, I mean, either one, you know, there's always that possibility as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and I think it's also important uh, coming to our end here to say that it takes time. The damage our children, the trauma our children have experienced happened over time. And I hear parents who they've had kids for six months in their home and they're, they, and they're expecting the child to be a totally different person. And that's, that's just, it took a long, it took more than six months for this child to be damaged. And it's going to take more than six months for this child to be healed. Yeah, I think, you know, I try to use different analogies with parents and we we talk about this a lot in our new book, but think of like, if there's a bicycle path in the woods or something and you're riding on that path, when you try to take your bicycle out of it, it's hard. It's stuck in that path. Yeah. And even if you get your bike up beside the trail, often it goes kaboom and goes back in the path. Mm-hmm. And I talked to parents about that's like neuropathways pathways in the brain. When you over and over and over have resorted to aggression and screaming and yelling and kicking to deal with your emotions, those are well-worn neuropathways pathways in the brain. And it's just like, you know, that's where the bicycle goes. And we're trying to like plop the bike out of the path and build different neuropathways, pathways, but they're weaker and they're not as strong yet. And they're going to take time. You know, another thing I often talk to parents about, especially, you know, when kids have had multiple, you know, a lot of these kids have had three, four, five, six, 20, 30 foster placements, some of them. And I say, you know, look at it this way, but we're, we're a new family and we're safe and they're not in that situation anymore. Well, let's say you've been married and divorced 20 times. How likely are you going to (laughs) be to really trust number 21 very fast? Not very likely. Yeah. And so give our kids space and grace and time because it's going to take a little while. Well, thank you so much, Karen Buckwalter. I cannot recommend her book enough. It's Raising the Challenging Child, How to Minimize Meltdowns, Reduce Conflict, and Increase Cooperation. And let me remind everyone that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You need to work with your mental health professional or your adoption professional. And don't forget to let your friends know about this podcast and recommend it to them. If they're interested in the areas of adoption or foster care, we would really appreciate uh, you spreading the word. Thank you so much, and I will see you next week.